Well, the big question remains tonight, where is Heidi Allen? We are hearing from the family of Heidi Allen for the very first time. A snowy Easter Sunday just before 8 in the morning when Heidi made her last transaction. The family of Heidi Allen of Oswego County says the new details on her kidnapping and presumed death. Many in the Oswego community believe he and his brother Gary were responsible for Heidi Allen's disappearance. 24 years after his arrest for the kidnapping and presumed murder of 18-year-old Heidi Allen. I've been in the system day one, and you know, there's nothing else I can say. All I know is they ended up chopping her up. What do you think happened to Heidi? What was done with her body? The thing, the thing was, there wasn't really any hard evidence at all. Well, they, it's not even, they didn't even bring her in the house. They didn't send me in. He said, Gary, you killed this girl, didn't you? And he stopped a lot. He said, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. You'll never know. On April 3, 1994, in the small upstate New York town of New Haven, an 18-year-old girl by the name of Heidi Allen was kidnapped from the convenience store she worked at. It's been over 25 years since Heidi's disappearance, and there's still no trace of her. Two brothers were charged with her kidnapping, but two separate trials yielded two different outcomes. One brother was acquitted of all charges, and the other was found guilty and spent the rest of his life behind bars. And if you're thinking, well, at least they got the guy who did this, by the end of this story, you might be thinking a little bit differently. This is Peebles for the People, and I'm Alex Peebles. I don't know what the world's been missing, but I think we need a miracle. I'm This is more than just a story about a small town kidnapping. This is a story about 25 years of unanswered questions. But before we go any further, I want to let you know that I have a connection to this case. We're going to get into that a bit later on. Heidi Allen came from a well-connected family in the tiny town of New Haven, New York, where the population was under 3,000. Growing up in such a small town where everybody knows everybody and their business can be difficult for anyone, and Heidi was no exception. Heidi had gotten into some trouble when she was just a teenager, causing a falling out between her and her parents. Because of the hostility at home, Heidi decided to move in with her grandmother, who was just down the road from her parents' house. But anyone who really knew Heidi would say she was your typical hard-working 18-year-old girl just trying to build towards her future. Heidi graduated from high school in 1993, which was a proud moment for her cousin Missy Searles, who was one of Heidi's closest family members. Missy gave Heidi a bracelet as a graduation gift, and Heidi wore that bracelet everywhere. The bracelet had Heidi engraved on the front and Love Missy engraved on the back. Less than a year after high school graduation, Heidi began working towards an associate's degree in human services at a local community college. While taking classes, Heidi worked at the D&W convenience store. The store, which was your basic mini-mart where you could find eggs, milk, snacks, and gas pumps, was located at the intersection of routes 104 and 104B 
in Oswego County. Ellen was no stranger to work. In fact, she started at her first job when she was just 15. If Heidi wanted something, she worked for it and paid for it herself. No better example of this was when she purchased her first car, a maroon 1987 Pontiac Sunbird. Ellen's impressive work ethic didn't go unnoticed, and she was promoted to night manager at the D&W convenience store around the spring of 1994. Much of Heidi's great work ethic could be attributed to playing sports, in particular volleyball. And at 5'11", 145 or so pounds, Heidi was a force on the volleyball court, where she was better known as the Tower of Power. Although Heidi had her hands full with school and work, she was still able to balance a relationship with her boyfriend of two years, Brett Law. But her relationship with Law created even more drama on the home front, as her cousin Missy didn't like that Law was seven years older than Heidi. But Heidi didn't care what anyone thought. The couple met when Heidi was just 15, and they believed they were in love. Law said Heidi would even drive 10 miles out of the way just to give him a kiss. Law and Heidi were inseparable, it seemed, and Law treated Heidi well. He even accompanied her to work when she had to open the store at 6 a.m. on Easter morning in 1994. The drive was just five minutes for Heidi, but the roads were slick with a dusting of snow, which was common in early April in Oswego County. The couple arrived at the D&W convenience store at 5.50 a.m. While Heidi went through her morning routine of opening the store, Law read the Sunday paper and had a cup of coffee. But at 6.30 a.m., Law left to go get more sleep. That would be their last goodbye. While time slowly ticked by that morning, Heidi helped several customers. Then, at around 7.40 a.m., a man wandered into the convenience store in need of cigarettes. At exactly 7.42 a.m., that man purchased two packs of basic brand cigarettes. That was the last recorded transaction on April 3, 1994, making that man the last customer Heidi would ever help. Just a little while later, a local patron of the convenience store named David Stinson realized there was no clerk tending the store. At approximately 7.58 a.m., Stinson instinctively flagged down a passing sheriff's deputy, Deputy Richard Curtis, to help locate the store clerk. Curtis saw money on the counter and a newspaper on the floor, but nothing seemed to be out of place. Heidi Allen's whereabouts were a mystery, and moreover, Allen's car keys were on the counter and her maroon Pontiac Sunbird was in the same spot she left it at around 5.50 that morning. By 8.15 a.m., investigators were on the scene taking photographs of the only thing they found to be unusual, a treadmark from a tire, as if someone had screeched off in a hurry. Once it became clear that something was wrong, it was all hands on deck in the search for the 18-year-old store clerk. I sat down with former investigative reporter John O'Brien. O'Brien spent years covering this case, and he told me, even though foul play was suspected, police missed a crucial step in locating a missing person, which may have been caused by a jurisdiction battle. Once 
everyone realized that this was a kidnapping. The state police wanted to get involved because they were much better trained in this than sheriff's department deputies. Um, but there was a, a battle over that, and the sheriff, Charles Nellis, didn't want to let go of the case. So he said, no, we're hanging on to this. You guys stand down. And they, the sheriff did not set up roadblocks, which is an obvious thing anybody would do. You don't even need to be trained to know that you got to stop every car in the area. Um, and the state police were ready to do that. Roadblocks or not, Heidi was still missing. And there were no leads yet. The name Heidi Allen flooded police scanners. And one off-duty investigator, Sergeant Roy Lordy, recognized that name almost immediately. He knew that Heidi had a secret tie to the sheriff's office, but that connection would remain a secret for years. By 10 a.m., a command post was set up at the New Haven Fire Station, where deputies sifted through calls for any credible leads. To get a timeline of events, deputies checked the cash register for the last recorded transaction. That's when they realized that the last purchase occurred at 7.42 a.m. Police knew that there was a window of about 15 minutes in which Heidi could have been taken. Now, authorities had to find the person behind that last purchase. But before they could find him, that man called police. Came on TV a little later on that someone was missing at the DNW store. We... I had no idea the clerk was missing. So her grandma said, maybe you ought to call him, tell him you were there. Richard Thibodeau was the man that police were looking for. He was the one who walked into the store and purchased two packs of basic brand cigarettes at 7.42 a.m. And I was able to sit down with Richard to discuss this case. Well, I got up. And we ran out of cigarettes, so I left and I went down to the DNW to get cigarettes. I got, bought two packs of basic cigarettes and uh, went in the store and I asked the clerk to get me two packs of basic cigarettes because that's what we smoked back then. So she gave them to me, I paid her, I walked out. Got in my van, and I'm waiting for this guy to get in his car so I could leave. Richard drove a beat-up 1976 Chevy G10 van. It was white with black doors and had a black stripe running along both sides. After his trip to the DNW store, Richard said that he went back home and got himself ready for Easter, he said he spent Easter at his girlfriend Teresa Crawford's grandmother's house in Oswego. That's where Richard made the call to police. Just a couple hours after calling police, Deputy Chris Van Patten came knocking on Crawford's grandmother's door to get a statement from Richard. And according to Richard, that was a pretty brief conversation. Her grandma said, maybe you ought to call him, tell him you were there. At least tell him you were at least, at least there. So I did that. Then a sheriff come later on, gave him my statement, stuff like that. And he said, fine, left. And I didn't hear nothing from it for a while. A few days went by, 
and there was still no sign of Heidi. By now, most of the community had come together in search of the 18-year-old store clerk. Along with canvassing the area, community members faxed hundreds of flyers with Heidi's face on them. And among those who joined the search was Richard Thibodeau. We went on the search for Heidi Allen. That's where the nightmare began. Six days after Heidi's disappearance, Richard and a group of his family members all piled in Richard's old beat-up van and headed to the command center at the New Haven Fire Station. Among the group that Richard had recruited were his brother Gary Thibodeau and Gary's girlfriend Sharon Rapaza. After they all got to the command center, a man was added to their group to help search for Heidi. But what Richard didn't know was that man was actually an undercover sheriff's deputy. I had a bunch of people on my van. I had no idea there was a cop there. I know there was somebody telling us where to go. I didn't know who the hell the guy was. You know, I didn't know Mm -hmm. nothing. After what was an unsuccessful search, Richard and his group drove back to the command post. And that's when he realized police thought he was the one who kidnapped Heidi Allen. Before Richard was able to leave the command post, Deputy Ralph Scruton asked him to fill out a questionnaire. But what Richard didn't know was this 10-page questionnaire was created by a local FBI agent who would send the results back to the agency's behavioral science unit in Quantico, Virginia. Richard filled out the questionnaire voluntarily. He wrote his responses in blue pen, and his answers were riddled with misspellings and grammatical errors. Questions asked Richard's ideas on how to conduct the investigation, what he knew about Heidi Allen's disappearance, and what the most likely causes of her abduction were. Obviously, that last question was asking what motive someone would have for kidnapping Heidi. But if someone wasn't involved in the crime, how could they possibly know what the motive could be? Thibodeau answered, being left alone, no surveillance camera, no alarm, no weapon to protect herself. I didn't know anything about the questionnaire. I had no idea what would you do if you did that. I said, I don't know. I don't know. I, mm-hmm. You know, what would I do? I don't know what I would do. You know, I didn't really fill it out all that good, I guess. I don't know. I just handed it back to him. I said, I don't know what you're talking about here. I just gave it back to him. After Richard filled out the entire questionnaire, detectives Robert Wheeler and Scruton asked him to come down to the sheriff's office to answer some more questions. Richard and his girlfriend, Teresa Crawford, went down to the sheriff's office voluntarily, where they were separated and questioned individually for eight hours. During the interrogation, detectives did what they could to get a confession from Richard. They even went as far to lying to him, saying that Teresa was in the other room squealing on him. But Richard didn't flinch. They were telling me that she's confessing and saying how I uh, kidnapped Heidi Alice. Uh, I said, you guys are nuts. I said, she ain't saying no such thing. I said, I didn't do it. You guys are off the wall, I said. I think it's also important to mention that during interrogations, police are allowed to use lying, 
trickery, and other non-coercive measures to obtain a confession from a suspect. And Richard had the right to end the interrogation at any moment. But he didn't. He even agreed to take a lie detector test that night. They told me to answer the questions and say no to them. So they asked me, did she have a white bra? I said, no. Did she have a black bra? No. Did she have a red bra? I said, no. I said, what's this got to do with anything? I'm thinking to myself. So they just went, they told you to say no to these questions? Yeah. And then they listed off colors of bras. She could potentially yeah, wear. that was a basic thing of the whole lie detector test. The lie detector test took three hours. And during that time, Detective Scruton testified that investigators visited Teresa Crawford's grandmother to question her about what time Richard arrived on Easter morning. According to police, the timeline that Richard gave in his statement was off by around an hour. Richard said that was because April 3rd just happened to be daylight savings time, which added another layer to this kidnapping. While all of this was going on, investigators were also searching Richard's van for any trace of the 18-year-old store clerk. If she was in that van, she would have been struggling, and there would have been all kinds of evidence from her in that van. Hair, you know, fingerprints, all kinds of forensic stuff. And there was, they found nothing whatsoever. Maybe you're thinking, well, anyone who used their van to kidnap someone would clean it up and get rid of any evidence. And that is a fair argument. But when this van was voluntarily given to police to be searched, it was filthy. I've seen the pictures taken while they were searching this vehicle, and it was anything but clean. Finally, at around midnight, Richard and Teresa left the sheriff's office, and Richard voluntarily gave authorities samples of his DNA through pubic hairs, head hairs, and blood samples. They found nothing, mainly because there was nothing to compare it to. Heidi was still missing. But investigators did have DNA samples from Heidi, so they were able to compare her DNA to what they found in the van. But police found nothing from the van that matched Heidi's DNA. If Richard Thibodeau did kidnap Heidi, where was she and where was the evidence? After days of what seemed like a never-ending search for Heidi, her family posted a $20,000 reward for any information that could lead to the recovery of the 18-year-old store clerk. That brought forward an eyewitness to the kidnapping. Christopher Bivens of Oswego told investigators he drove past the DNW convenience store at around 7.30 the morning of Heidi's disappearance. Bivens was interviewed by police for the first time on April 18, 1994. And what you're about to hear is that interview conducted by Detective Ralph Scruton. Then I looked to my left and gathered the woman and two men looked like they were having a dispute. Where was this at? That was at the gas station on 104B and 104. Okay. Um, I did not want to get involved at that point in time and get tied up. 
stick my nose in somebody else's affairs. Uh, I gathered what I seen was the guy had her in a bear hug from behind. Uh, looked like a woman was just upset and hysterical. I did not know what was going on at that time. And another gentleman was walking towards his van. But according to the police notes from the original phone call that they received from Bivens, he could not identify any vehicles in the parking lot and he could not identify any of the men. But when Bivens was asked to describe the men he saw, he was somehow able to describe them as older and husky. He even gave investigators their heights. Okay, can you give me possibly his height? Approximately 5'11". Which one? The one walking the to the one van? The one walking towards the van. The one ahead of the girl was taller. I would estimate about three or four inches taller. Okay. I would say he, the guy holding the girl was almost six foot. Okay. And the guy walking towards the van was how tall? About 5'11". Still, this description was the only lead police had. But there was a problem. At 48 years old, Richard Thibodeau stood just 5 feet 5 inches tall. Could Bivens have been off by a half a foot? Or would this eliminate Richard as a suspect? Then, investigators asked Bivens to describe the van that he saw to the best of his ability. But again, how could he identify a van that he already said he couldn't identify? Describe the van to me in as much detail as you can. Uh, the van was a light blue and powder. It was an older van between a 79 and an 88. It looked like a Chevy, possibly uh, a Dodge van. I'm not sure if it was a window van. It did not have a tire rack on the back. It possibly could have been a two-tone with a dark blue center. Uh, if it had pinstripes on it, I would not say there's a dark blue someplace, and I've seen a dark blue, and it was somewhere around there on the van or the guy wearing the coat. Okay, but the dark blue you describe as? I was estimating the center of the van was okay. painted a painted. dark blue. All right. The statement by Bivens was truly the only lead police had to go on, but his statement didn't really incriminate anyone. What Bivens' statement did tell police was that at least two men were involved in this kidnapping. Was Bivens' statement accurate, or was he just telling police what they wanted to hear? Regardless, a month and a half after Heidi's kidnapping, police made an arrest. On May 25, 1994, police arrested Richard Thibodeau and charged him with the kidnapping of Heidi Allen. May 25th just happens to be National Missing Children's Day in the U.S. Richard was arrested for a crime in which there was no physical or forensic evidence connecting him to it, and no witnesses connecting him to the crime either. The only thing police knew for sure was that Richard was at the DNW convenience store at 7.42 a.m. to purchase two packs of cigarettes, and they only knew that because Richard called police to offer any information he could provide from that morning. Still, with their guns drawn, police, along with SWAT, surrounded Richard while he was on his way to work. I did everything I could possibly do to prove that I didn't do anything. 
and they didn't find nothing in my van whatsoever. And they still arrested me for it. They had no proof, no nothing. Why are they arresting me? I was heading to work. I was out there on uh, Eggleston Road, and they come swarming and uh, stopped the car I was in. There was a bunch of them out there, I don't know. They had their guns drawn, everything. <clears throat> I thought they would, they probably thought it was like Al Capone, I guess, I don't know. But, or this big gas criminal, which I wasn't. Richard, however, was not the only Thibodeau arrested on that day. Richard's brother, Gary, was also arrested on May 25th, 1994. But Gary wasn't arrested for kidnapping. I have the notes from an interview with Gary Thibodeau conducted by John O'Brien, where Gary said he remembered the day his house was raided and he was arrested. His dog came running in the bedroom, rubbing his eyes. The dog had been pepper sprayed, and Gary said he could smell it. The police were yelling instructions to Gary, telling him to put his hands out the door. But Gary was naked, so he had to put on his girlfriend Sharon Rapaza's blue shorts. When Gary put his hands out the bedroom door as instructed, the cops grabbed his hands and threw him onto the concrete floor. He was lying flat on the floor, face down, and Sharon was yelling for them to be careful. Gary had shattered both of his ankles in an accident at work, and according to Gary, one of the police officers stomped on one of his ankles while he was lying on the ground. He said he would remember that day until the day he dies. He was dragged outside where there were dozens of police. There was a helicopter, SWAT teams, FBI agents, and sheriff deputies. His entire yard was filled with police. Gary was arrested on misdemeanor drug charges from Worcester, Massachusetts. That seems like a lot of resources for police to use for some misdemeanor drug charges from another state. Not to mention, it's virtually unheard of to be extradited for a misdemeanor. The sheriff's department goes to Gary's place and gets him on the Massachusetts misdemeanor charge uh, to extradite him back to Massachusetts on that charge, which is absolutely unheard of. They, that, you never get an extradition on a misdemeanor. Their obvious ploy is to get him in jail in Massachusetts, hoping he'll say something about Heidi. Police had the two brothers in jail. Now they just had to prove that they were the ones who kidnapped Heidi, which is an interesting thought, considering... They just threw two people in jail with no proof. What made that even more difficult to understand was that Heidi still hadn't been found. Authorities seized Richard's van for a second time and searched it with a fine-tooth comb for any trace of Heidi. On the second time through it, they did it again, and they took bags and bags of sweepings, you know, fabric, hair. Um, they did find fingerprints in the van. None of them were Heidi. Um, and they, they sent everything to the FBI uh, lab in Quantico, Virginia. Nothing came back matching Heidi. On top of searching the van, investigators searched Gary's property, including an old furnace that he had in his backyard. Gary said that he used to use that for burning trash. Police found bones in that furnace, 
but after forensic testing, the bones were confirmed to be nothing more than chicken bones. Nothing at Gary's place linking Heidi in any way, in, in his car, in his house, in that furnace. Um, and I, you know, I just, a little aside here, I, I, grew, I was living in Mexico at the time. I, I was a reporter, but I wasn't covering this case. But I remember the rumors back then were that the sheriff's department was convinced that Heidi was burned in that furnace. And they were, like, the word was getting out that, yeah, they found fragments of Heidi, but they never did. On top of that, Gary wasn't even at the D&W convenience store the morning of the kidnapping. He said that he was at home in bed with his girlfriend, Sharon Rapaza. But the two brothers were behind bars anyway, and police still had no solid evidence incriminating Richard or Gary. So police went back to the only source they had, Bivens. It seemed like police went to Bivens whenever they were at a standstill, and every time police went to him, his account of what happened seemed to change and got more focused on the Thibodeau brothers. And the guy walking towards the van was just probably a little bit taller than the girl. Okay, it's estimated about five, seven, five, eleven in that area. What you just listened to was another interview with Bivens conducted by police. Did you notice how the height of one of the men went from 5'11 or 6 feet down to 5'7 or 5'11? Also, if the men were taller than Heidi, it would be impossible for either of the men that Bivens saw to be shorter than 5'11". Bivens was clearly all over the place about what he saw on the morning of Heidi's kidnapping. But police still had nothing solid linking the Thibodeau brothers to the kidnapping. Then, that all changed when two men came forward with information. Robert Baldessaro and James McDonald were serving time with Gary Thibodeau in the Worcester House of Corrections in Massachusetts. Those two men went to police and told them that Gary had made admissions. Now, to clarify, this does not mean that Gary confessed to them. This is legal jargon that means Gary may have said something indicating that he may know what actually happened to Heidi and that he may have been involved. And what you're about to listen to is the recording of Baldessaro's statement from July 21st, 1994. He said, Gary, you killed this girl, didn't you? And he stopped a lot. He said, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. You'll never know. And, you know, we, to this day, believe he did. Just from the way he talked, his actions, the stuff he said, what he knew. I mean, he... I don't, like I said, this is what he's telling me now. If he's lying, then you'll know more than me. But he said she worked at a convenience store. That's where she disappeared from. He said he was with her the morning before she disappeared. But he dropped her back off. And he did mention something. I can't, I'm not 100% sure, but uh, there's some stuff in the back of his brother's van on the rugs that they were trying to say was blood or I don't know, something like that. So Baldessaro just said Gary told him he was with Heidi in the morning before she was abducted, and that he dropped Heidi back off before her abduction. Well, we know that's not true. It is indisputable that Heidi was at the DNW convenience store to open the store at 6 a.m., and she didn't leave until she was kidnapped sometime between 7.42 a.m. and 7.58 a.m. 
And even though what Baldessaro said was false, police still believed they had their smoking gun. But there was still no physical or forensic evidence linking Gary to this crime. And Heidi was still missing. There was no trace of her anywhere. Where was she? If the Thibodeau brothers did do this, what did they do with her and what was their motive? As time went on, police and prosecutor Donald Dodd seemed more interested in putting the Thibodeaus behind bars than they did finding Heidi. I've reached out to Donald Dodd several times for an interview, but I have still not heard back. Dodd was described by people who knew him as a loner, and as prosecuting attorney, Dodd's job was to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person suspected of a crime actually committed said crime. Realistically, though, the job of the prosecution begins well before the trial. Prosecuting attorneys investigate crimes with the police and ultimately decide whether there's enough evidence to bring the case to court, and they have complete discretion on this. This position plays a pivotal role in our justice system, and in many cases, prosecutors hold the future of the accused in their hands. As it's the prosecution's sole judgment on whether to bring a case to trial, there's a lot of pressure on them, especially when it comes to cases like this one, a kidnapping in a small town where rumors seem to spread like wildfire. There was no sign of Heidi. There was no evidence. But there were two inmates telling police that Gary Thibodeau made admissions. And this wasn't Dodd's first time relying on the word of accused criminals to build a case. In fact, according to an assistant DA in Oswego who worked with Dodd, this was Dodd's go-to move. Quote, that was standard operating procedure for Donald Dodd. End quote. Dodd created a reputation among prisoners in Oswego as the guy they could go to to make a deal. The assistant DA who worked with Dodd on several cases remembers one specific case that will stick with him forever. A defendant was accused of assaulting a jail deputy, and the assault was elevated to a felony. According to this source, the only way that happened was through the testimony of another inmate. Quote, he was willing to say whatever was needed to say against whoever they needed him to say against. End quote. A juror on this case even saw through this ploy and was astounded at the informant's lack of credibility. The jury later acquitted the defendant, and Dodd's reputation even drove his colleagues away from any cases he would work on. We talked to another uh, prosecutor in the office who said, I would not, I didn't ever want to take a case that Dodd started out because it would always have a jailhouse informant and it was always bullshit. At the time of the kidnapping, Dodd was the assistant district attorney of Oswego County. He was second in command to James Gross. But Dodd was put at the helm of the Heidi Allen case, thinking if he solved it, it would set him up to take Gross's place as the district attorney of Oswego. As Dodd attempted to build a case against the Thibodeaus, even his boss, Gross, began to see weaknesses in the case. The only thing that incriminated either Thibodeau were two jailhouse snitches. Uh, they have to eventually indict him with a grand jury. He has to say, yes, we think there's enough evidence to charge him. Um, 
but what there was here was was beyond weak. It was uh, pathetic. As weak as this case looked, it seemed like everyone was just burying their heads in the sand and letting this happen. There were leads that came in that had just as much credibility as any other leads police had. But if it didn't fit the Thibodeau narrative, those leads seemed to fade into the background. Ken Allen, Heidi's father, called in a lead to police saying that he was suspicious of a man by the name of Daniel Barney. Barney had a violent background, and many knew him as the resident bad boy. Allen became suspicious of him as he started coming around more after Heidi's kidnapping. Police even listed him as a probable suspect. But according to the police, Barney had an alibi, and that was the end of him being a suspect. But remember, Gary Thibodeau also had an alibi for the morning of Heidi's disappearance. The police also got a lead from an employee at the post office who noticed mail piling up from a P.O. box for two weeks directly after the kidnapping of Heidi Allen. The post office reported that to police, and the owner of that P.O. box was a man by the name of Michael Bohr. Was it a coincidence that Bohr just stopped getting his mail for two weeks right after Heidi's disappearance? Or did he skip town after the kidnapping? What if this was the lead that could help police find Heidi? But it seemed like police already had their sights set on the Thibodeaux's, and they needed more than just the word of two jailhouse snitches. So in June of 1994, Sheriff Charles Nellis put a picture of Richard Thibodeau's van out to the public, hoping that someone would recognize seeing that van the morning of Heidi's vanishing. Nellis's hopes were answered when a woman by the name of Nancy Fabian claimed she had seen a two-toned van on Route 104 heading through the village of Mexico, New York at around 7.45 the morning of Heidi's disappearance. Fabian was unable to identify the driver of the van, but she said that he was, quote, scruffy-looking, really kind of a rough-looking character. But was she a credible witness? By now, two months had gone by since the kidnapping. So the question is, why did Nancy Fabian wait until now to come forward? Did she really see Richard's van that day? Or did she see another van that fit that description? But police saw this as a credible lead. And when others came forward with information that didn't help the case against the Thibodeaux, they were marked as not credible and tossed out. There were at least two others who came forward saying they saw a van that looked like the one in the picture Nellis put out to the public. One man came forward and said he saw Richard's van in the city of Oswego about 15 minutes west of the D&W store, which conflicted with what Fabian had said. Then another man came forward saying he saw the Thibodeau's van at the Topps Market in Oswego close to 11 a.m. But we know that couldn't have been Richard's van that that person saw at Topps because that was the same time Deputy Van Patten was getting a statement from Richard at his girlfriend's grandmother's house. All this did was bring forward a lot of people who thought they had seen Richard Thibodeau's van. And maybe they did. But how do we know who to believe? Why choose to believe Nancy Fabian over the others? What if all three of these people saw a van that simply looked like Richard's van? 
there were still so many unanswered questions surrounding the kidnapping of Heidi Allen. Mainly, where was she and what happened to her? It had been two months since Heidi Allen's abduction, and it seemed like police were not any closer to finding her. Were the Thibodeau brothers really the ones behind this kidnapping? Or were the real kidnappers still walking the streets of Oswego County? Find out on the next episode of Peoples for the People. That free man go. Lord, won't you let that free man go? Lord, won't you let that free man go?